Well, let me welcome everyone who's here this morning. Um, glad you're here, and I know that we do have visitors. We are certainly grateful for your being here. Um, I want to welcome you to the church that meets here at East Orange and invite you to come back at every opportunity you have, and I hope you will have opportunity to be back with us. To our members, I encourage you to continue to welcome and be friendly as you have, and uh, I'm sure that uh, people will enjoy being here. This morning, I also would be remiss if I did not mention, this is the, and you saw it in the bulletin, the 15-year, uh, 15th anniversary memorial of 9-11. I know we have members in the audience who had friends and family members, and we have even been touched uh, at the church here by that tragedy, and so we do want to remember, and we do want to reflect. Um, to be thankful for the courage that was shown that day, to be thankful for the sacrifice that was, that was made, and just to remember, as Romans 5 does, that it takes a lot to give your life for another. And there were a number of people who did that day give their lives for their fellow citizens and fellow Americans. And that in itself speaks to the best of man, and it is a reflection of the image of God. So let's do remember and be mindful of that. One final thing, and then I will get into the lesson. Um, I was asked a number of times what I was going to say about the tent meeting today. I thought that was interesting. Um, but I do have the opportunity to stand up here and say a little bit about it. Um, I guess there, the words that I've heard most to describe it was great and awesome. So that's good in itself. Those of you that did help out, as has already been said, I want to give you my personal appreciation, and the church here, I, I'm sure I express for them as well. Uh, a lot of work went into it. Uh, uh, certain ones should be singled out, not the least of which would be Wes, um, that did quite a bit of legwork, and, uh, and others here as well. But, uh, and to you that came and invited friends and family um, exactly as we asked you to do, and really that was the thrust of it, was to bring a number of people here and expose them to these difficult questions, but also to the way that there are, you know, there are answers that can be given from the Word of God. And, and I think we accomplished that. Uh, heard, I don't know how many good comments, was able to talk to a number of people that uh, you brought with you, and that's, uh, that's great in, in, in and of itself. And we would encourage you one final thing about that, as we did yesterday and as we continue to do, um, if people have further questions, and usually you go away from something like that with questions, uh, please encourage them to, to ask and to feel free. I know Wes and I both, and I know there are others here as well who would um, gladly, gratefully uh, be willing to talk with them, and so encourage you to, you know, to pass that along to them. But again, great. Thank you for what you did in making that a success yesterday. So without further delay, let me get into the lesson. What is the lesson about this morning? The appeal to God. As Kenny read from 1 Peter 3 a moment ago, you can tell that this passage is talking about what Jesus has done. It is also talking about um, salvation and how God has, at different times, in Noah's day, in our day, how God does and has saved people. And so this morning I want to talk about Something within this passage and focus upon, especially in verse 21, and you may notice it, the King James says, the answer of a good conscience. But if you have most other translations, 
will rightfully and correctly translate it something like the appeal. And it is an appeal that's being made to God, in fact, for a good conscience. So I want to talk a little bit about that this morning, the idea of appealing to God. And we're going to come back to that term several times in the lesson. But making an appeal to God for a good, or we would often call it a clear conscience. Let's talk a little bit about that. The appeal to God that's being talked about in 1 Peter 3 and verse 21 is a legal appeal. In fact, if we go back to the Roman society in which this is written, and I think Peter is probably addressing quite a number of Roman citizens, their court system was not altogether unlike ours. In fact, uh, when people were setting up this country, the ancient Roman court system and legal system was one of the bases upon which our country was founded. And so this whole idea of making a legal appeal. Now, there, were, there was a system and a correct procedure within the Roman society for making a legal appeal, just like you would do today, and you would have a right as a citizen in certain situations to make a legal appeal, and it would always be based upon a stipulation within the law. So if I have a right to legally appeal something, it is because it is addressed in the law. Well, that's exactly what Peter is referring to here. An express stipulation that grants the right to make a legal appeal. Now let's look at it in verse 21. And you can follow along up here as I've translated it. Which also now antitypically. What do we mean by antitypically? Well, an antitype, and the King James says like figure, and, there, and uh, correspondingly is the way it's translated. But literally, an antitype. What is that? An antitype is something that has been foreshadowed by a type or symbol, and in the new, that's the type, and in the New Testament, antitype, or against that type, is something in the New Testament that is an event that corresponds to it, or an event that's been prefigured by it. Now, if you look at verse 20, in this case, and let's look at verses 20 and 21, God is talking about how once he saved eight people, and if you'll notice in verse 20, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved, and if you'll notice the phrase, they were saved by or through water. Now, that seems strange, because we think of the flood as purely being destruction. God destroyed the world by the flood, by water, and he did. But when and while he was destroying the world by water... He was also saving eight people by water. If you think in terms of the ark, it was very much like a barge. And most people, when they picture the ark from the description in Genesis 6, they will draw a very rectangular structure. And it was, we know from the Bible, three stories high. And most people would say, if you build such a structure like that, and I'm talking about people that understand all of these things, if you build a structure like that, and you put all of that weight of the animals and food and all of that that would have been on the ark, probably two stories of it would have sunk under the water. One story would be above the water, two stories of it, two-thirds of it would be below the water, and that would make it stable. And people have looked at this, again, who understand all of that, and talked about the waves and the turmoil and everything, that such a structure being submerged, two-thirds of it under the water, could withstand all of that. 
that it is a very sound description of how a person might make it through such a flood. Now think about what God is saying. While he's destroying the world by water, he's using that same water to save eight people. God could have saved them any way he chose. He could have put them up on an island in the air. He could have held them up on nothing surely by his power. But he chose to save them in the very thing he was using to destroy the world. Now that's interesting. So when we look at the verse 21... What Peter is saying, what God is saying through him is, corresponding to that, how he once saved eight people by water, he saves us by water. Look at verse 21 again. So antitypically, baptism is saving us. And Peter says, we're not talking about washing off your skin, not putting off the filth of the flesh, but it is the legal appeal that's made unto God of a good conscience. Why is it a legal appeal? In very simple terms, because the fact that you're saved by baptism is written in the law. And I can make an appeal to God. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that, but let's go further. When we look at 1 Peter 3, or we look at Romans 6, are a number of passages. And you might want to just flip over to Romans 6 for a moment. And you will notice in Romans 6, and I ask in the bulletin a question about this. But if you look at Romans 6, and especially if you look at verses 3 and 4. What's being described there is Jesus' own death, burial, and resurrection. Obviously, he died on the cross. He was buried in a tomb. He rose on the third day. Well, there's a picture, a parallel, and that's why I ask it like that, a parallel to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and here it is. You take an individual, and I love stick men, so I've got one drawn out here. You take an individual who is lost. The Bible would describe someone who is lost as being dead. Just like in Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 1 and 5, a person is dead in trespasses and sins. So here is an individual who is dead, but just like we have behind us here, we have a baptismal font. It has water in it, and that dead person decides and agrees to go into that water, and if you look at Romans 6, and let's read verses 3 and 4. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism. So here we are laying down in a grave of water, as it were, by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should be raised to walk in newness of life, saved. And if you look at the picture... 1 Peter 3 and verse 21 is saying it is the baptism that saves you. It is that act that you go through. But Romans 6 is explaining it further. You are dead in your sins. You go down into a grave of baptism. You rise up from a grave of baptism to a new life. You are saved. And so if you look at Romans 6 very carefully, and let's finish the reading here, we are buried with him by baptism into death that like is Christ is raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we, and I'll just say, are raised up to a new life. For if we have been planted together in the grave of baptism, just like a body is planted in a grave, if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, and let's look at verse 6 very carefully. Knowing this, that our old man, That is that life of sin, that person that used to live, that Michael White 
that you've heard all those shaggy dog stories about, you know, that guy is gone. That guy was buried in a grave of water. He's, he's dead and gone. And there's a new man, a new Michael White that lives when he comes up out of the water. So knowing that our old man is crucified with him, verse 6, that the body of sin might be destroyed. And then notice a very important word, that henceforth, from this point on. When I'm raised up out of the grave of baptism, from that point on, things are different. I'm a Christian. I'm saved. I live a new life. Let's go a little further and talk some more about it. You know, as you look around you in the world today, and I'll just make some notes here. And I decided to do this slide like this because it really is just some notes that we ought to remind ourselves of, remember. There's only one baptism. Turn to Ephesians 4 and verse 5. And notice how very clearly the Apostle Paul says, One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now that may sound very exclusive. And there, there may be a number of people in the world who would look at such a phrase in the Bible and say, that's exactly why I don't like the Bible. It's too exclusive. It denies that there are many different ways and roads and avenues to God. And I'd rather think in terms of getting to God in any of a number of different ways. Now that is the mentality of human beings. Let's stop for a moment and think about it. If God really is the Creator, and I believe He is, and I know most, if not all of you, believe He is. And if He has created us to serve Him, to live our lives for Him, to give our lives to Him, if He has, in short, made us for Himself, and the Bible says He has, then He would have a way He wants things done. That's not unlike we are. If we have a family, if we have children, we want things done a certain way. If we have our home, it is my home. I want things done a certain way. If we have a job, if we have a business, and we hire workers to come and so forth, we want things done a certain way. And I don't feel bad about it. I might think I could do it a better way. You know, I might have that idea, but I don't feel bad about it because after all, hey, it's your home. It's your business. You know, it's my job. I'm doing this, working for you. I'm being compensated. I'm being paid, etc. We understand that. It's not hard then to understand that God would say, you know what? I want it done my way. And there's only one way that is my way. And so while it might sound exclusive and it might dredge up a lot of emotions, if I take a step back and I look at it, it's not unlike I am. When something is mine, I want it done a certain way and I don't feel bad about asking for that because it belongs to me. Well, this world, everything in it, including us, belong to God. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's only one baptism. Just as there is only one Lord and one faith that was once, Jude 3, delivered by the apostles. And I might then make this note, while there are indeed many different baptisms in the world, I could find a lot of them. Uh, we could go across the street and the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has a baptism. There are a lot of different baptisms in the world. But only one is recognized by God. Now, it may not be this one here. I think it is. I believe we are doing what God teaches us to do, but it is open to question. But what is not open to question is that God has just one. And so, God has His baptism. It is the one He recognizes. 
And so, that being the baptism within the law of God, it is the only one upon which, the basis, the stipulation, upon which I can make a legal appeal. If I go before a judge and I make a legal appeal, the judge is not interested in my opinions. What I think, how I think things should be done. He is interested in what is in the law. And on what basis are you making your legal appeal? You and I are making a legal appeal to God for a clear conscience, a good conscience, based on what he has said. And we have the right to do that. Man has instituted many different faiths, meaning laws. There are many different sets of rules, rules to go by, rule books to go by, councils, etc., have issued different rules. Man has instituted many faiths. And in turn has exalted many lords. But there is only one Lord and one faith that is recognized by God. And baptism comes as a result of hearing the gospel, that one faith, that one law, and believing. We can see various verses in the book of Acts when Philip went to Samaria and preached. They heard the gospel. They were baptized. When Paul went to Corinth, they heard the gospel. They believed it. They were baptized. We can see that. It's the basis upon which one appeals to God for a good conscience. So let's think about baptism out in the water for a moment. The appeal to God. I want you to turn to Matthew 28 and consider with me carefully a passage that I really love to use when I'm, when I'm talking with people about this whole idea. Because people do ask, why, why do you emphasize baptism? Why do you baptize people? It, it seems like something that, you know, is really not that important. Now, I know that it does to people. And yet to God, it it is a difference maker, a change maker. So we look at Matthew 28 and we listen to what Jesus said as he closed out, you know, as Matthew closes out his gospel, he records Jesus saying this in verse 18. All power, the word is authority, all authority is given unto me, Jesus says. I'm the one Lord, I have all power in heaven and in earth. Now notice verse 19, go ye therefore. So when I begin to think about baptism... I think about Jesus' authority. Therefore, the Lord authorized the apostles to go. And notice what he tells them in verse 19. And make disciples out of all nations. How do you do that? And they might have you know, been questioning, how, how do we make a disciple? How do we make someone in Britain or the Americas, if they even understood there were such places at the time, how do we make them your disciples? Well, you baptize them. And you baptize them in in the authority on the basis of the law of God, which tells you to baptize them. You baptize them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And in this way, if you notice in verse 20, if I can get it to pop up there, if you notice in verse 20, this is the change maker. This is the difference maker. It's like Romans 6, henceforth, from this point on. It's where a person begins a life of obeying the commands. He or she understands that the Lord has said in His law, the legal appeal you are going to make is on the basis of doing this. You know, when a person stands before a judge, if they haven't gone through the proper procedure, they don't get very far. If they don't do it in exactly the way the law stipulates, it won't be recognized, and they won't get very far with the appeal. 
But if they've gone through the procedure exactly as the law says, they have a right, a legal right, to make such an appeal for whatever it is they desire. Now, you and I desire a clear conscience. I don't want to have a conscience making me feel guilty about what I've done in the past I know that is wrong. I told you, you know, about many times about some of the things I've done. And my conscience bothered me. Still does sometimes. But I have to go back and revisit this and say, wait a minute. You had the right based on what you did. You were baptized. You made an appeal to God and God granted a clear conscience because the sin is taken away. So let's wrap up by saying this. Baptism in the New Testament is stipulated. It's in the law is the idea. It is stipulated with a clear, concise purpose. If we look at the various passages like Matthew 28, like Romans 6, like 1 Peter 3, like Acts 2.38, you know, where Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, etc. In all of these cases, either directly stated, baptism is for, or we might ask the question, what is it for? For example, if we were to look at Acts 2 and verse 21, and you might want to turn over to Acts 2 for a moment. Quoting from the book of Joel, Joel 2 as a matter of fact, but quoting from the book of Joel in chapter 2 and verse 21 of Acts, the Bible clearly says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now notice that. All who call on the name of the Lord. Now that begs the question. How do I call on the name of the Lord? Because there are things that come to mind that I could do. I could literally just say, Lord, save me. I did that at 12 years old. But it's not what God tells us to do. I could do that, and it would be calling on the name of the Lord, but it is not what God tells us to do. If you turn over to Acts 22 and verse 16, you'll see Paul, the Apostle Paul's account of his own conversion. And he will talk about a man named Ananias, a Christian named Ananias, who came to him and, after talking with Paul, said to him, Why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized. Now notice that. Be baptized. Doing what? What are you doing when you're being baptized? You are washing away your sins, but you are also calling on the name of the Lord. You're making an appeal to God for a clear conscience, a good conscience, by what you're doing. It's the procedure that's important. It's the proper, correct procedure that you go through that enables you to make that appeal, or we might say, call on the name of the Lord. Baptism is for calling on the name of the Lord. In Acts 2.38, going back to that passage, or looking at here, washing away your sins, baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. Oh, we might put in a number of passages. Baptism is for 1 Peter 3. Notice what it says. Antitypically, corresponding back to the way God saved Noah and his family by water, baptism in water is now saving us. Baptism is for salvation. Or like Jesus says in Mark 16, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Baptism is for a good conscience, a clear conscience. Now, I'm going to close with this slide, but I want us to think about exactly what Peter is saying. Because the word good here is interesting. We say, 
I want my conscience to be clear. And we mean by that, usually people mean by that, I don't want to think about what I did before, and I don't want to have to think that what I did before is against me. Either if it was before baptism, or it's some great sin, and that's usually what we talk about with our conscience bothering us. It's not the little things we do, quote-unquote, little things. But it's it's those big things we do. I don't want to think about that. I don't want to hurt from that. I don't want to remember that being against me. I don't want to look at myself in the mirror and see the guy who did those things. I don't want all of that in my conscience. That's what we mean. But really, that's not the word here. It means all of that. It carries with that the idea as a result of what it's really saying. But what it's really saying, and I want you to hear this, is it's so much more. Because interestingly enough, What Peter is saying in 1 Peter 3.21 is that baptism is an appeal to God, not just for a clear conscience. Oh, I know I'm a horrible person, but I really don't have to think about that being against me anymore. That's what we usually mean. And that's not what it's saying. Because the word that's used is the word good, and there are two different clear, distinct words in the New Testament for good. One of them has to do with something, you know, I say something, man, that's good. That pizza is good. Good. I mean that the aesthetics of it, it tastes good, it looks good, it smells good, it feels good. That's one word. But I use good in a different way. And I know exactly what I mean when I say that person is a good person. It means morally, ethically, the very core of their being, they're good. And I understand what that, that means. I want you to know that that's the word that Peter uses. And you know what he's saying is that baptism takes your sins away to the point, to the very point, that you, that old person that did those things is gone. You are a good person. And that same terminology is used for the Christian who has been baptized who commits such a sin and a praise to God and repents and the blood of Jesus takes away, 1 John 1, those sins. What God is saying is that He restores to us a good conscience. You go around to these babies that are here this morning and you say, what have you done that's wrong? They don't know what you mean. What horrible thing have you committed so that you inside feel like a terrible person? They don't understand that. They have no conscience of it. You go to one of us as an adult and you say, what's the worst thing you've ever done? And we immediately go back. Our minds immediately go back and reflect upon what made us, as we see ourselves, not a good person. God says, if you're baptized, you come to me with a legal appeal. And you appeal to me based on my law to restore to you, and that's the important thing, to restore to you a conscience that's as good as that baby that you might just have walked up to. It's absolutely clear. It's absolutely good. And it is based on the power of the resurrected Lord who said, this is what I want you to do.
If you're here this morning and you're not a child of God, if you believe in Jesus, that He is the Son of God, that He is the Lord, if you take Him at His word, you believe Him, you'll confess that He is the Son of God. This morning you'll be willing to change your life. From this point on, you will give your best effort to live your life for Him. And you will believe that He said, be baptized for forgiveness of your sins. Be baptized to be saved. But maybe more importantly to you, be baptized for a good conscience. And if you believe that, He will restore that to you. Maybe you're here this morning and you've done that and you look at your life and maybe you look at some certain things that you've done and you say, I'm not a good person. The Lord says if you repent and you ask forgiveness from Him, He will restore the good conscience. You will be a good person. And you can have faith, not in yourself, but in Him, by His power to be able to do that. Please come while we stand and sing.